0: We have the stablecoin with new properties, more scalable, better pack and kind of um, with native DeFi yield um, because the reserve is staked ETH, you know, and you get a yield on that, even a DeFi yield better than, I would say, a kind of a centralized yield. Then you have this leverage product um, where you can participate in the leverage of the system, which is non-liquidatable, hands um no ongoing fees. And the third thing, is then the the borrowing experience, which will also be part of it. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely
1: their own opinions and not necessarily those of Fourth Revolution Capital. Podcast guests and 4RC may have positions in the assets or other matters discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Hey everyone, welcome to the Edge Podcast. I'm DeFi Dad and I'm here with my colleague and co host from Fourth Revolution Capital, Nomadic. In this episode, we'll dive into what looks to be one of the most radically new decentralized stablecoin upgrades, Liquidy V2. Two years after launching what most of us regard as the most decentralized, unstoppable stablecoin in DeFi, LUSD, and having issued over 4.5 billion worth of interest free loans, It was recently announced at ETHCC that Liquidy is developing, quote, an alternative product that aims to crack the stablecoin trilemma. Today, we'll get a first look at the mechanics and features behind Liquidy V2, including two critical innovations, one of those innovations being principal protection, a unique feature that keeps losses in check during market downturns, the other being a secondary market to minimize liabilities stemming from principal protection. But before we do, just a quick word from our sponsors who make The Edge podcast possible. Whether you're a trader, farmer, analyst, or newbie, you can trade smart with KyberSwap, the OG decentralized exchange and aggregator on 13 chains. Swap at the best rates, farm with real yields, set limit orders, use their proprietary trading and AI tools with the best UX and DeFi, securely and permissionlessly. Get better rates, better opportunities, better alpha, and a better trading experience. Trade smart now at kyberswap.com.
2: Hey everyone, my name is Kaido. I'm a co-founder at Utopia Labs, and today we're really, really excited to be announcing and launching a feature called USDC Bank Transfers. We're basically allowing for any company based anywhere in the world to be able to send USDC to any U.S. bank account, whether that U.S. bank account is a U.S. citizen or a person
1: who might have something
2: as simple as a WISE account. If we zoom out, since a year ago, there's been a chokehold on kind of the interoperability and seamlessness between traditional rails and crypto rails. We put a a lot of time and effort into this to be able to provide a smooth end experience for you as a consumer or as a company using crypto and using traditional financial rules it all started so simply with crypto kitties and maker on ethereum but quickly became complex with more applications and many chains today everyone agrees ux issues are the biggest blocker standing in the way of crypto adoption introducing avocado Multi-chain UX redesigned from the ground up. The first wallet to abstract networks, accounts, and gas. One gas tank to pay transaction fees on all chains in USDC. And native access to Instadap's powerful custom DeFi strategies. Avocado, one wallet to rule all chains.
1: All right, in just a moment we'll introduce Michael Svoboda and Robert Lauko from Liquidity. Michael was CEO and COO at several blockchain companies previously, and no surprise, has a degree in computer science and economics. Robert is the founder of Liquidity and head of research. He interestingly has a PhD in law and was previously a researcher at Definity. So let's kick it off. Michael and Robert, welcome to the Edge Podcast. How are you doing? Great.
0: Thanks for having us.
1: Hi, everybody. It's a great pleasure to be here. Hey, so thanks for joining us. We know you just got back from ETH CC, I think a few weeks ago. And no surprise, ETHCC was a huge success. We heard very typical sort of uh, uh, bear market Ethereum conference where there's lots of uh, exciting innovations. And so, one of the, the headlines to come out of that was about Liquidity v2. Uh, now, Nomadic and I have thankfully been users of Liquidity for quite a long time. And so, we're intimately familiar with all the nuances of v1. I want to really call out the fact before we even get started that Liquidity has stood as a benchmark for DeFi from a decentralization standpoint, from a censorship resistance standpoint. And so those immutable contracts will remain in V1, but we're excited for some of these new innovations you're going to bring about with V2. And so um, I'd love to start with the usual about your guys' background. You know, would love to hear the story of how the two of you uh, got interested in crypto and, of course, what led you ultimately here to working on liquidity. Uh So maybe, uh, Robert, do you want to go first and, and talk a bit about your
3: background? Sure. Yeah, thanks for the introduction. Um, as you said, I mean, I started off as a lawyer. I even um, practiced a few years as a law clerk. But then when I kind of um, got aware of uh, crypto, and more specifically, when Ethereum was founded in my hometown, in Zug, where I live or live, used to live back then, it's really like captured my Im- imagination. And I started delving deep and uh, yeah, became kind of a blockchain researcher in my free time because I always had a kid interested in technology even before studying law. And then after, you know, a lucky chain of coincidence, I ended up working um, for Definity, which back then was a very small company with 10 people. And I did various things there, worked on consensus algorithms, game theory and other interesting parts also with operations and my last job there was basically to look into like what can be built on top of a layer one blockchain and it was like in 2018 19 when d5 was really in an early stage and i became really interested and fascinated by those protocols like awe and which used to be called eastland but also maker and i just wanted to build my own stable coin which then became liquidity or version one Yeah, and that was like at the end of 2019 when I basically quit my job and started, founded Liquity, together with my co-founder, Rick, who is based in the UK. Yeah, Michael, uh, what what is your background uh, prior to joining Liquity? I worked in a
0: large telecom company in Switzerland in the digital business and innovation team. And we consulted companies or internal teams on on kind of the disruptive technologies. And once I saw the blockchain technology, I realized, okay, actually, that's the only disruptive, really disruptive thing I see outside here. And I realized um, I'm going to miss it if I stay in such a large company. So that's why I quit. I found out my own startup um, back then more geared towards traditional financial players. And then we soon realized uh, this space is too slow. The, the traditional or institutional space. And then um, DeFi summer came and we said, hey, that's the thing. That's so much faster, so much more innovative. You can roll out products globally. And then I heard about Liquidity. and, you know, Robert grew up in the neighbor town of me. And I said, hey, wow, then it's a Swiss DeFi project, which is amazing. And we went for lunch. And then I realized that uh, it's totally value aligned. You know, uh, that's what I still love about Liquidity, how the decentralization ethos isn't great and since then uh, always have been in love with liquidity so liquidity went live april 5th 2021 for those
2: new to liquidity maybe one of you can just describe what it is and what it does at a
3: high level sure so yeah liquidity started off as a borrowing protocol in the first place and as a stable coin in the second which means that we wanted to make borrowing as attractive as possible and by borrowing i mean collateralized borrowing so people would bring their ether and they will take out the loan in our own stablecoin called the LUSD. And what makes this loan really special is basically the fact that the loan is interest-free and also that you can borrow up to 90% of your Ether value, which makes it very capital efficient. And all this is kind of enabled by a novel way of liquidating loans, which kind of allows the system to give out more money against the same amount of collateral.
1: I want to mention that... Uh the last year has been just a continued reminder of why liquidity's designed the way it is at least v1 uh back in march 2023 there was a usdc DPEG, peg uh and uh there's a number of reasons for it but during that time lusd continued to hold its its uh, dollar peg and at times was trading at a premium because it's seen as such a reliable, unstoppable, decentralized stablecoin, and then more recently, uh, as, as much as all of us here are, you know, allies and, and love the the uh, the Aave protocol, Aave and and other protocols were going through some tough times with um, issues around Curve, the CRV token as collateral, and so we saw interest rates spike, and so you you have folks who have been enjoying pretty low interest rates as borrowers throughout most of the bear market. And then we all got this, this reminder that uh, interest rates can just, you know, that they can go very high overnight uh, just because of, you know, a really sort of like simple event uh, like what just happened with the curve collateral. So suddenly the idea of, of paying uh, a 0.5% as like a, uh, a minting fee to open up a CDP with liquidity, suddenly that looks much more attractive.
0: I just wanted to touch what have we achieved since then. So, I mean, the protocol has been running autonomously because it's immutable since these two years. It issued more than $4.5 billion in loans. Um, the stablecoin has a, around $300 million kind of market capitalization. It's the only major stablecoin without counterparty risk because it takes uh, uh, decentralized c- collateral and has these immutable properties. And uh, it was really great to see, you know, recently, as you said, um, one of the very few stable coins that was growing in TVL, but, and we also had an all time high in loan positions just recently. And even kind of, um, uh, even, even better or also nicer was that we recently got a A rating from blue chip, which looked at different stablecoins, and we were playing the same league like Paxos, uh, like a Paxos um, stablecoin. I think that was really cool.
1: You know, I, I just mentioned some of the you know events over the last year that again have served as a reminder of, of why Liquid V1 is designed the way it is. Can you share any uh, insights or you know reflections you had during that time? Like as a team, I, I'm sure it was. Uh, a somewhat confusing time because none of us want to see other protocols, other stable coins struggle. You know, we want DeFi as a pie to grow, but I felt like it, it reinforced a lot of the uh, decisions that were made that were not the easy road. Liquidity has always been about taking, I think the, uh, the harder road to ultimately growing the protocol which actually this will later lead into like the exciting things about V2 and making it more scalable.
3: I mean, maybe if you look back, I mean, liquidity um, is now live for a bit more than almost two and a half years. And it has gone through a number of interesting situations. I mean, it all started with a flash crash. It was like just one month old and it was like a 30% price drop in one day or something like that. And like 300 positions were liquidated, and that was the first big stress test for the system because it handled it quite well. And then, I mean, later on, there were big redemptions. Some of them were kind of by accident, and the system can could still cope with it. And there were like a number of, of further occasions, like the collapse of Terra Luna, and then also, um, you know, the FTX scandal. And just this year, early this year, there was this latest, um, yeah, um, problem with US, US, USDC uh, and uh, S- uh, Silvergate and like the banks that were behind it. And, and then, yeah, you know, all the stable coins um, lost value on that specific day, including LUSD for some reason, but it recovered very quickly because it has this very strong redemption mechanism, which makes sure that it can always go up to $1 in value, at least relatively close to $1. So it just also, it was a proof of how resilient the system is under different market situations. We want to get into V2 today, but maybe just give us another quick
2: overview of key features that exist in liquidity V1 as it is today and and maybe just break down like um, this term CDP, like collateralized
0: debt position. Maybe speak to that a bit as well. Sure. So um, yeah, the value proposition of liquidity. I mean, liquidity Robert built it, uh, Maker was already there and he had great ideas how to make it better. And think there are three value proposition that one is um, the interest freeness of the, of the loans. Then the second thing, the high loan to value um, ratio. And the third part is kind of this really um, full decentralization, full stack decentralization from the code to the front end, which gives then LUSD, the stable coin, um, these nice. Properties, so you are not exposed to centralized collateral or counterparty risk. I think um, that's together with the instant liquidation, which plays more to the loan-to-value ratio. These were the the major innovations, um, I think, back back then. Yeah.
1: So uh, we were checking DeFi Llama, and and there's a, a part of it that shows forks, uh, which it's it's really interesting because you can see. Uh, which protocols have been forked the most in DeFi. And I believe that, uh, liquidity is like the 10th most forked protocol. Um, folks will remember in the last DeFi bull run or the last crypto bull run, uh, Uniswap was, uh, one of those protocols that kept getting forked and, uh, just wondering, like, how do you feel about those liquidity forks? You know, for example, we interviewed, uh, gravity, uh, or, I'm sorry, gravita recently, and they're looking to implement more, uh, Uh, liquid-staked forms of ETH as collateral. Uh, We also interviewed Prisma, which I believe is also uh, a fork of of liquidity. But anyways, what are your thoughts on all these forks?
3: Well, um, in in some way, um, being copied is the highest form of flattery. But of course, it also depends a little bit on how you do it. I mean, there have been forks that were very value-aligned and friendly, and they also... like improved upon some of uh, Liquidity's key features. And I think Rabbit is a good good example of that because they, yeah, they, they were really, they, they came to us and they wanted to also collaborate and, and make sure that they are building something which is worthwhile. And that's like the kind of forts that we really appreciate. And, and that's also the reason that we put out like our code base as not just being open source, but I mean, we didn't put in any restriction um, against uh, copying it or modifying it. I mean, there are now like a bit more than 20 forks. Not every fork is, has the same, you know, set of innovations or like, yeah, I mean, there are multiple ways or multiple things what you could do as a fork. Some forks just went to another chain, which that, that's how it started. Um, there were forks on, on layer twos, but even on, on layer ones, some, some of them, they even just ported the code to um, Rust and Solana, which, which is interesting because that takes quite some time and effort. And now the latest kind of uh, trend amongst our forks is just that they would like use some staked is liquid stake derivative as collateral, because that's something we cannot offer. And I think that's like a um, a natural extension in in some way or another. Not sure, Michael, what you, your Yeah,
0: To add add on that, it's, uh, I think it's even the, now the top three most forked uh, project because mainly because of this ETH uh, variant, so it's the dominant stablecoin design. Of, I think Robert and then the founders that were there from the beginning created a really resilient uh, approach, which is copied a lot. Which is going back to the to the to the other question: a CDP-based approach, so a collateral debt position. So the stablecoin is is minted against this debt position. Somebody. Um, you you said you had, a, um, I think, also a loan. So somebody deposits ETH and then the stablecoin is minted against it. So um, that's a CDP-based model. Maker is like that. And most other stablecoins are like that. And I think that's important because we will see with V2. And um, there we're taking a completely, not completely new, but but really uh, another approach, which has uh, interesting um, opportunities, but also some some challenges, yeah.
1: Uh one of the terms that gets talked about in reference uh to liquidity is uh unstoppable or immutable. Uh would either of you care to explain what that means and, and why that is so integral to the the design of liquidity v1 and, and I'm guessing v2 as well?
3: Yeah, so the key idea there is that uh I mean being mutable always adds some uh angle of uh, uncertainty and it also adds an attack vector in some way or another. So we wanted to be as secure as possible, which kind of implied being as decentralized as possible. And we really like wanted to make sure that decentralization doesn't stop at the protocol or core level. We also wanted to extend it to the front end, uh, which I think we pioneered more or less like our decentralized front end approach. But I think the main or the part that's kind of the most, let's say contentious one is that we cannot update our code in any way so we cannot change or add, you know, more collateral assets. But that's like on purpose. And it's now also one of the limitations of the current system. But it's also one of the big advantages because pure Ease is really, you know, the, the highest quality collateral that you can have, at least on Ethereum. And and that's why also I think that we one will always have its role. It will always have its reason of existence, even with V2, because V2 will be a bit different when it comes to collateral assets, but still we want to keep to our um, immutability principles. So even though it might have, let's say, a different um, type of collateral, it would still, hopefully, I mean, that's what we are working towards, be immutable. And to also add on that, why is that important? You know, people
0: say decentralization, unstoppable. Why should users care? I think it's really because you get a a different dollar. You hold a different dollar value that has other properties than if you would do with another stablecoin or dollar on on your bank. Uh, One is there is no freezing blacklisting, um, of course, so you are always in control of your dollars. There is only ETH as a collateral asset, so no centralization risk. You can always redeem against ETH, so you don't have this counterparty risk. so you have kind of the, I think, one of the soundest dollars because it's non-rockable. And, and, and I think that's the benefit then for the user. Uh, and, and I think sometimes that, that gets a bit missed. And um, that's also the reason why more and more people diversify their dollar holdings. You know, not shifting maybe everything, but just say, hey, it makes a lot of sense. Not every dollar is, is born equal so that I have different dollars in my portfolio um, which I can use. Some over the banking rails, some um I, I want to kind of have only backed by crypto asset and so Gents, I think
2: this transitions us nicely into v2. Um just just listening to uh your responses, just about the immutable nature of of liquidity v1 is is so fascinating. Just this idea of launching something into the wild that you can't change. Um, it's just a wild concept. And then seeing what it does. Um so I think you've collectively all had the time to see what it's done. And I think you're all very proud of it. And um, it, it's become like a, a major force in DeFi as we've already touched upon. But with V2, um, what what have you been thinking and what have you been cooking up? What, what One thing actually I think we should touch on first is I was reading over your blog, the introducing Liquidy V2, and you touched upon the stablecoin trilemma. In crypto, we love our trilemmas. We we, we have many trilemmas, it seems. Um, maybe break down for listeners, what is this stablecoin trilemma? What's on each end of this triangle? And uh, how are you solving this with LiquidEB2?
3: Yeah, maybe Let, let's start with the stablecoin trilemma because it has multiple meanings or definitions. So what I will tell you is kind of my version of it. So um, please be aware of that. So I would kind of... Call three properties the main properties that you want to achieve as a stablecoin, which are safety, decentralization, and scalability. And/or safety in the sense of robustness, I should say. Um, And what I mean there is: like, you know, the stablecoin should not collapse, it shouldn't end up in a um, vicious or like cycle where it would go down to zero. So that's what I would call is, is the sta- safety or robustness aspect. And then by scalability, what I mean is that whenever there is demand for the stablecoin or for more of the stablecoin, the system should be able to mint it. And whenever this demand goes back, the system should be able to redeem it, um, which also implies a very strong peg because now you can arbitrage it whenever it's above peg and also uh, like an ARP situation whenever it's below. So that's like the second um, property of scalability. And then last but not least, decentralization, which is core to our DNA, which is implies that nobody should have control over any part of the system. It should all be run by code in the end. That's kind of this decentralization aspect and immutability is kind of the purest form of decentralization. Okay, so I want to start to talk
1: about the differences between uh, the CDP uh, system that is in V1 versus this new reserve back system that you've described in V2. So, Michael, could you uh, start to uh, call out the differences between those two?
0: Sure. Maybe, you know, first, why are we shifting from, from such a good approach, you know, that everybody's copying? Uh, So, I mean, using staked ETH as a collateral, that's one new thing. But as we have seen, you can use liquidity for that. But as Robert mentioned, there are other limitations. The scalability, directly being able to mint and redeem is not possible in the current approach. The peg is always uh, also um, a bit an issue. So that's why we opened up and say, how can we improve on that? And that's why we looked into reserve-backed stablecoins and think they offer some answers. But also have some challenges where we need then the innovation which we talk about. So as I said, a CDP-based model, the stablecoin is minted against mostly a volatile um, collateral, ETH, in in liquidity V1's case. And this means the risk is uh, with the borrowers. So you have this volatile asset which is backing a stablecoin. You know, that's a challenge. How do you handle that? And we won, made it really easy. They just said, okay, I don't want to handle that problem. I gave it to the borrower. And if they don't handle it, they liquidate it. So we're fine. And um, with reserve backed system, now um, the stablecoin can be directly minted. So I deposit ETH or staked E into the protocol and get a stablecoin back. I'm not opening a borrowing position. Um, yeah, sounds easy. But now um, who's owning the, the risk of the volatile asset? It's the protocol. So the entire protocol has now the the risk and needs um, to hedge itself. Um, And we know reserve-backed stablecoins, for example, USDC and USDT are reserve-backed, just kind of with centralized collateral, with stable collateral. So that's not so difficult. But if we want to preserve the property of V1, uh, we want to go for ETH or staked ETH, and that's a volatile asset, so um, that make, makes it a bit more difficult. But maybe first, it's also a really nice uh, opportunity because if, as an ETH believer and staked ETH holder, um, if now the protocol holds this reserve, and you know, what you, you know what USDC is doing with its reserve, you know, they're earning a lot of yield and pocket it themselves. Now think about it if you create a protocol which takes the yield and distributes it to the users and now because you have uh, even a volatile asset kind of if EVE goes up the protocol can share the whole upside with the users. So instead of pocketing you have this big opportunity that EVE believers have a project where they can participate in the upside. Of course they have also a role to then hedge the downside Um, and that was or is still the, the the difficulty why we haven't seen a lot of reserve backed stablecoin with a volatile asset that have really worked. But this is the difference from CDB based to reserve back with the great opportunities, the seniorage and fees, which we can um, redistribute. Um, but also with, with the challenge, which needs innovation. And I think um, there I, I leave it then to Robert to, to deep dive, but was, was that kind of setting the scene for you or are there questions? Yeah, that was great. Um, if you can build what you just said,
2: that sounds very exciting um, and something I think a lot of people are going to want to use. So Robert, let's let's switch it over to you. Um, can you break down some of the things that Michael was talking about um, maybe a little bit deeper? So in your blog, the two things that stood out to me as these two new major innovations coming to V2 were this principle protected leverage and then the subsidized secondary market maybe walk us through what those are and and how they achieve that vision that Michael described.
3: Yeah, sure. So let me start uh, with leverage as a concept and how it fits into the whole picture of a reserve-backed stablecoin. So as Michael already mentioned, you have this reserve which is volatile in nature. So sometimes it needs less Ether or less staked ETH assets to back the stablecoin supply, but sometimes it needs more. So this will be fluctuating. So you can think of it as As a reserve which has a surplus which can grow bigger or smaller. And in order to make sure that the surplus never becomes a deficit, you need to make sure that you have some other actor or user base which will act as hedgers. So those who kind of hedge the reserve, they would see their balances go up or down um, depending on the ease price movement. And now the leverage part comes into play because if this surplus or if the margin provided by those users is kind of small compared to the reserve, which can be bigger, then you are not just participating in your own kind of like benefiting or participating in the price movements of the funds that you deposited, but you're kind of inheriting uh, the price volatility of the reserve, which can be bigger. And that's where the leverage comes into play. So when Ease goes up, let's say by 10%, it may happen that your balance as a hedger goes up by 20%. And this leverage, and this is also important to um, note, is not fixed, so all people participating as uh, as hedging agents in the system will be pooled, so they are all getting the same leverage, but the leverage will be changing over time. The system always tries to keep it within some range, um, which we still need to refine, but there is no hard guarantee that the leverage will always stay the same. So that's for the leverage part. And now, where do we add principal protection to it or why do we even need it in the first place? The problem with leverage is that there are market situations where leverage is very attractive, like people would uh, want to get more of it and the system would not be able to, not even be able to cater to anybody or everybody. But there are also situations in bear markets and crypto winter where there is just not enough demand for leverage on ease or staked ease for that matter. And that's why we wanted to improve upon the product by adding principal protection to it, which makes it much less crazy or, you know, degen in some way, at least in in those situations where people are a bit more erring on the risk-averse side, it would become more attractive and just more all-weather. So that's one. And then, of course, principal protection also means that now your, your position would have like kind of a fixed, amount, we call this the principal, so you can think of it when you open it, let's say you get a principal of 10 staked ETH, and this will be kind of uh, insured by the system, but your balance could go up and down, it can become 5 ETH or 15 ETH or 20 ETH, and of course you would only want to claim this balance when it's much higher than than the principal. When it's lower you would never want to, to claim your principal. So that's kind of, um, in a nutshell, what this hedging position looks like. And maybe just one more addition to make it uh, a bit more understandable is that this principal protection has a price that the user will need to pay in, in, in some way because now it's it's like investing in the upside of it but being um, having a capped downside. And of course, this is like an insurance and people would need to pay a premium for it. And that's why um, the system would kind of Charge a premium, which is dynamically determined on top of the principal. To make a simple example, let's say you still want to open a position of, of a nominal or principal size 10, but maybe you need to pay 12 in total. So two, this two e's on top is basically um, the premium. But then you're, you're, you still have the 10 e's or stake these guaranteed in every market situation. But of course now you, you are subject to this two percent difference. So this or this sorry, this two staked ETH difference, which means that you got in with 12 E's in total, but you know that the system would make it so that you could at least get back 10 staked ETH. But of course it can be much more if the if the ETH price goes up.
2: And I guess if I were to do a quick summary of of this, like very simplified version, the way I, I read this and from what you were saying is with this uh, principal protected leverage you now have the ability to deposit your eth collateral not be exposed to downside risk of that eth but also maintain the exposure to if eth appreciates in value you still maintain your upside with your underlying collateral am I am I getting that right
3: yeah I mean just one um, thing to make it a bit more precise is that this um, downside protection is, um, denominated in staked ETH, which means that it's not guaranteeing you a dollar value, but it's guaranteeing you that you get at least some nominal amount back from the system when you need it. Um, but your upside is uncapped. Your downside is kind of capped. It's not zero because you ca- you still may lose this premium in the worst case, but it, it's still much less scary than a normal, let's say, leverage that you would have on, on a perpetual futures platform where you can lose everything you can even get liquidated here you cannot get liquidated because the principal protection always makes it so that you have this remainder that that's still your uh robert or michael uh, something that comes to mind when we talk
1: about v2 is uh so there was a recovery mode uh which exists in v1 where uh if the if the entirety of the protocol was uh less collateralized than that benefit of having higher LTV loans, being able to you know, borrow, I, I think almost like 91 cents on the dollar against ETH. Um, you'd have us as users rushing to pay back um, before it goes into recovery mode. Do, do any of these uh, uh, designs exist in V2 or do you foresee them playing into V2? Maybe even just the most obvious question of like how, how much borrowing power will we have in V2? Or might you anticipate us having in V2?
0: Maybe just let's go one uh, step uh, quickly back. You know, liquidity, we won, as Robert said, was borrowing first. It was a borrowing protocol, and then the, you got the stable coin. With V2, it's a, it's a bit different. As we said, the reserve pack, there's first the stable coin, and then on top, we'll, uh, the protocol will also offer of a borrowing so, so just to quickly outline the, the products that will be there you will have the stablecoin with new properties more scalable better pack and kind of um, with native DeFi yield um, because the reserve is staked if you know and you get a yield on that even a DeFi yield better than I would say a kind of a centralized yield so that's one part of the product then you have this leveraged product um, where you can participate in the leverage of the system, which is non-liquidatable, hence of um, no ongoing fees. And the third thing is then the, the borrowing experience, which will also be part of it. But it's um, maybe Robert wants to add on that. Just wanted to clarify a bit how that works in V2.
3: For the borrowing part, which is you can think of it as a subsystem of a larger system, which is both reserve-backed but also uh, a lending um protocol. So, in this landing part, there will probably be some form of improved recovery mode because, yeah, we have already identified some things that we may want to improve, but it will be probably relatively similar to how the recovery mode in V1 works with some improvements. So, that's for one, but then coming back to the reserve aspect of the system, Um, there as well we want to be on the safe side which means we we don't want to rely just on the hedging positions or on this leveraged product as the sole mechanism to hedge the reserve so there will be more there will be something similar to stability pool which would act as a fallback and and, and some other mechanisms as well so we want to make the system really you know as sound and robust as possible so we need a whole series of um, you know mechanisms that would kick in if one of them fails. So in like of sort of priority order, which is similar to what we already had, or have in in V1 with yeah multiple ways of liquidation and the recovery mode.
2: Can I just jump in real quick? Um, I think an important thing to note too is that uh, th- there will be a different stablecoin. Like this, this won't be um, this won't be LUSD. This will be a new issued stablecoin. And I think before we hopped on, you guys gave a good example just about how this is different than Liquidy V1. So this is like, think of Liquidy V1 as uh, Uni V2 and think of um, uh, V2 as Uni V3, if, if that makes sense. And and because uh, the immutable contracts of Liquidy V1, you do in fact need to issue a new stable coin here. So just so people aren't under the assumption that this will be LUSD still.
1: One of the like hottest sectors of DeFi has been Fi, uh, which refers to ETH liquid stake tokens. And so uh, one of the things that stood out for anyone reading that V2 post is just that V2 will be able to support uh, ETH LSTs. And so I'm just starting to think, you know, as a user of this in the future. Um, so I-, I know that it will be accepted into this like reserve backed system I-, I guess can you tell us any more about how you're thinking of like how the yield will be used and and then I- maybe even talk a bit about I-, I read something in the blog post about uh the ability to dynamically leverage ETH lsds where users can go long on ETH with no recurring cost and with built-in mechanisms for principal protection anyways if you can kind of just dumb down like how is ETH LSTs? How are ETH LSTs playing into V2?
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, the the main thing is that now a liquidity like system can take these LSTs as a as a collateral, and and um, you can mint a stablecoin or you can borrow against it. I think that's the main thing. Something a lot of people said uh, love liquidity, but said you know I would like to to use our um, a liquid stake version and. Yeah, where is the, the yield going through? I mean, the first thing, as I said, with a reserve-backed system, you have this reserve, which, like for USDC, well, a great business model. And now you have this yield that you can use it exactly to align the incentives of these ETH believers to, for um, one thing, hedge the protocol, but then also, if they hedge, give them the upside or attract all this fallback mechanisms that, that Robert mentioned, like the stability pool. Now, if you stake your um, Stablecoin, you get native yield. You can use that as a collateral asset. So we use, for example, the, the can use the yield for that to make the the system resilient. Because overall, that was the challenge of all previous system, and there has been some like like angle. Is if you need to hedge, there are two um, challenges: the timing, you know, when do you need the hedging, and the cost. So the innovation on the liquidity side, if you look then into the detail, is really how you, can you take that risk and kind of make it more attractive for users or, or catering to another need or um, creating interesting products that reduce the cost and make the timing in stressed situation not um, kind of make the period longer um, where you can hedge so
3: yeah i don't know robert if you want to add on that or if that answer your question as you said, I mean, we have a variety of ways of kind of splitting and distributing the yield, which is a nice feature or a nice positive side effect of using an LSD as the, a collateral for the reserve. Um, yeah, so so we are still like kind of optimizing um, some of the parameters there, but it seems that some, some split would work best uh, because we need um, multiple players to be incentivized, not just the hedging agents, but also people who would deposit the stablecoin to the stability pool, which again has the nice effect that now you have a built in yield source for the stablecoin. At least those who are willing to take some risk and back the stablecoin, they would get a nice, uh, probably even amplified yield, which is coming from the underlying Ease staking, which I guess is something we have seen now from Libra and it. Uh, has been quite popular, I think, among the users. And, uh, yeah, that's something which uh, will be possible in our system too. So if this all works as expected uh, or as designed,
1: let's talk about uh, it's 2024 and we're in a, like, parabolic sort of bull run. What do you expect to see then from Liquidy V2?
3: Um, yeah, I mean, it's hard to anticipate, but let me try. So, yeah. Um, when eth goes up, I mean, we are in a proper bull run, it would mean that the system would not need any more hedging agents because it, it will be collateralized sufficiently so that at, at some point it would not even try to attract more hedging agents. Like the leveraged product would not be sold anymore or at least be sold at a very high price because, yeah, when you have enough, like when you don't need to kind of urgently hedge your system, that's a nice problem to have. Um, and then probably the system would even be able to produce some surpluses like which are not even needed to back the whole system like it's in a very good shape, maybe even too good to like secure the system. So that's something to keep uh, um, to be aware of. Um, yeah. And then also like the yield would would still like kind of captured in the system and, and probably the yield may, like, may also go up when, when the whole market's go up. So, so that's like really the, you know, the positive um, scenario. Um, but uh, yeah, at least well, what we can also expect that at some point the hedging agents would close their positions because what they would normally do when their balances go up due to this inherent leverage, at some point they would want to cash out. So they don't need the principal protection any longer. They have already made a nice profit so they would eventually want to quit the system which is perfectly okay because the system let's say still has like 300% whatever collateralization so it can afford to kind of pay out um, the gains that have been accumulated in those positions
0: and I think that's the important part you know everybody that is um, hatching the, the protocol or helping in a bull market will benefit because now the surplus that the protocol is holding goes to everybody in the ecosystem. Contrast that to USDC, which also have some Bitcoin um, kind of backing. If it goes up, it's great for them, you know. And uh, here it's kind of different that we say, okay, now we have 300%. We don't need so much so we can give back. Hey, you took you took a risk. So that's the nice thing in the bull market. And how can you participate? Let's say you have and stake thief in your portfolio. Then maybe in the future, say part of my stake thief I put it into the system. I think I believe in in, in the increase of staked ETH. Um, I deposit it there. And if my assumption is right, I can benefit, you know. Um, and if not, I should at least keep my, my staked ETH amount by paying uh, for for this bet. So that's really the lucky case. And probably we need also to look into the less lucky case because, I mean, everybody's interested and just kind of wondering, OK, is this a Ponzi? Can we create stuff out of thin air? Um, and, and happy to, to look into that, how, how this works and what also the assumptions are. You know, it's important to know the assumptions because the risk profile, as I said, is a bit different. With liquidity, TV1, we can say V1 will always be more resilient. Uh, V2 has the yield of stake thief, but also some some additional risks with which come with that.
1: Uh, guys, could we now do uh, the same sort of uh, prediction or forecast for... Uh, being in a downtrend let's assume a bull market is played out and the price of eth it has fallen or is in free fall with everything else 50 60 70 percent what do we expect to see from this new v2 uh, liquidity
3: yeah a number of uh, mechanisms and uh, user behaviors will probably um, play into the whole um, system so first of all um, the protocol will try to keep its collateralization level at a target ratio. And in order to do that, it would kind of sell or try to sell more hedging products by making them cheaper. It has a built-in controller, which you can think of as an auction, a continuous dodge auction in a sense. So what the system can do, it can kind of decrease the price, like this premium that people pay when they open a position to make the positions more attractive. So that's let's say the number one um mechanism that would um kick off when when there is a like a downturn but then secondly also um i mean people would not want to close their positions when they are underwater so you don't want to claim of course you don't want to claim your balance which could become smaller than your principal so eventually what could happen is that your your current balance of your position becomes tiny compared to your principal and now you wouldn't expect to be able to sell this position on the secondary market just as is, because maybe nobody would even pay the principal for it because we are in a very difficult market scenario. And that's where the second big innovation of the system would um, start, which is the subsidy mechanism. And um, this is pretty unique. I don't think any other protocol has tried or built something like that. So instead of, you know, paying out the principal protection at once, like just as is directly to the user, we cannot do that because that might become dangerous for the system because the system might not have enough funds to kind of, you know, serve everybody's principal protection requests, at least not at the same time. But the protocol can do something else. It basically allows you to list your position on the built-in secondary market, and then you would list this position at the principal. So you had like this position of 10, where your let's say your current balance is only 2 or 1, and now you would try to sell it for 10, which is the principal, but you may not be able to do so because maybe nobody would buy it. Then there is a timeout period, maybe a few days, after which the protocol would step in and gradually increase your balance. So the balance would go up from 1 to 2 to 3 and so on, and there should be a point at which um, somebody would buy the position for the 10. So it, the protocol only needs to spend as much ease or staked ease um, until like somebody takes it for the given price, uh, which is a very nice feature because it allows the system to cut down on its uh, costs a lot. So first of all, you don't need to subsidize all the positions at the same time. We have this timeout and, and, and time delay which kind of spreads them out, uh, making it less of a strain for the system. And then secondly, uh, you also need to subsidize to a fraction of the current balance, or the the principal, you don't need to uh, pay the full, you know, principal amount and those two um, features uh, in tandem should make sure that the system is able to finance the subsidies when needed. But hopefully you would rarely need them if ever, because that would only Um, be an issue when, you know, people, they are not valuing this principal protection. They are not kind of factoring in any time value, as you call it in option literature or option terminology. They will not value the fact that you have the principal, but you also have a bet on top. So, if this time value kind of completely goes away, that's the point where the system would need to um, pay out subsidies. But most of the time, for most of the positions, that are either in the green or just not too deep in the red. So to say they will need a subsidy because people could still sell them on the secondary market just for the price they, they want to sell them, or at least for the principal without needing any subsidies at all.
0: With the hedging, we have like a collective coverage with this principal protection. And of course the money needs to come from somewhere and it can't be unlimited. You know, we, we can't, we are not magicians. If, if ETH goes to zero, Probably it's not possible, like with an insurance. An insurance or protection gives you some guarantee, but there's the point when a, when, um, uh, the, a meteorite uh, crashes the earth, probably you're not covered. So um, w- what we do is that, that we say, hey, we have enough people that believe in ETH and an asset and if it goes up. So based on this assumption that over the long run and with, with kind of some volatility, we believe in that, we can create such a reserve-backed stablecoin which is resilient. But it needs to be under this assumption. You know, if, if we all think it only goes down, yeah, sure, it doesn't, doesn't work. You know, you don't need to be a, a mathematician to, to figure that out. So the, the key thing is how to design it to attract the users and in such a way that kind of EVE over its time can handle that. And then we can participate in the upside. And now people may still think, you know, hey, but I think that's a Ponzi and never uh, would I do that. And then I just say, you are already in such a system. You know, you, the pension system is, is similar. You know, I'm paying now and people taking money out and I believe that there will be more people that will kind of um, pay, pay my pension. Um, and honestly, i rather have my pension system in Eve, where I think more people are coming in. I'm more confident that the Eve will be worth more than my dollars. Um, so I will position it as an alternative to that. And then I think um, it really becomes feasible when people understand that. But um, I think just to be fair, I mean, these are the assumptions you need to be willing to take. And then I think it's it's a great system, you know, but we, yeah, just wanted to, to highlight that for users.
2: I think those assumptions you're making um, are very in line with the users, which is obviously the best way to build a product. I can already see the product market fit for people that denominate in ETH and are long ETH. Um, so appreciate you guys going like way over. You you just keep like snowballing more questions into my head. Um, one thing I've been thinking of like sitting here is obviously you've said V2 is maybe scheduled for some time, Q2 2024. And I want to ask you both as, as creators of this, um, is there worry if copying more forks uh are are you worried about like letting some of the innovation out of the bag early and i'm also curious if if you'd ever introduce anything like what uni v3 did with some sort of license will you accept the forks which sound like they could be inevitable from what i'm hearing you building right now What, what do you how do you think through all these things
3: maybe to your first point and then i let michael maybe chime in on the on the forks Um, But like for the first part, I mean, um, just putting out innovation or like talking about what we are doing, even though we are still ahead of time, like almost a year until the planned launch date. um, I think we, first of all, we want to include the community. We want to get their insights, their criticisms and and see um, what they think about the product. So that's why we are doing it. And we are not really afraid of being copied at this stage because we realize that what we are building is is very ambitious and we have already some head start because we have been working on it for, for more than half a year. And in some sense more almost a, a year when the, the first idea kind of came about of this reserve backed stable coins. So we have already done a lot in the past and, and there are still a lot of obstacles to overcome, which we are now working on. So it's an inter- intense phase still, uh, even though we have started implementing it and we have made quite some progress with the prototype but still i mean there are open uh, research questions as well so we are not so afraid of being copied at this stage at least i am not
0: yeah and i mean w- what i realized is and as i haven't been there from the beginning for liquidity how complex it is you know how how much you need to look into that model it um to get really uh, come up with a new system. and we honestly, we haven't seen a lot of new system. You have uniswap, innovation, curses innovating, but there aren't so many teams, and you need really a lot of special skills. And I think that's the beauty of the liquidity team. It's the still the initial team over the, all these years. It has built their first stable coin and went through all the perks you need to think about. We did chicken bond, you know, and this helps us now a bit. You need you have also this bonding which needs to be sticky. So now we're connecting the dots. So I think um, that a lot of people underestimate that and why we, we are open. We, you know, it's a community effort. We can create here our collective stable coin and we want to do that in an honest way and also win the community um, as users, but also to make the system better. Uh, we really believe in that approach. That's why we also said, um, let's, let's, yeah do that together um, and, and and do it like that. And I think that's something, yeah, you can copy just the code, but the other things is difficult. And we we took this bet, yeah.
1: Okay, so before we wrap up, I've, I've got a few rapid fire questions. Uh, most of them are just yes or no type questions, but this, this is meant to be uh, kind of like the TLDR for folks who are just digging into uh, V2. Uh, so first off, uh, we talked about the fact that the stable coin of V2 will be a new stable coin. It won't be the, the same as V1's LUSD. Uh, but I wanted to double check, that will the contracts of V2, will those be non-upgradable like V1?
3: I would say for 99%, yes. There is still a chance that we may have to admit that some parameters would be upgradable for some at least period of time, but that's not what we are aiming for. We are aiming for full immutability. I understand that nuance,
1: like there's a lot that's experimental about this new system, and as excited as we are, <laughs> given all the uh, challenges that we've all lived through in DeFi, I-, I, I would imagine that we're going to be learning a lot from this system and then get to a truly immutable, non-upgradable uh, version of the protocol. Okay, then uh, next, V2 will support ETH and liquid-staked ETH, are you able to tell us which forms of liquid staked the ether is that kind of up in the air still?
0: Well, that's still up in the air. So um, we're looking into that. Honestly, that's also one of the limitations for immutability and decentralization. Not only is our system new, but the ecosystem of these liquid staking tokens is also new and moving fast. Um, and we haven't seen yet kind of the degree of decentralization like liquidity, which we would like to see. So there, uh, we are looking into the space and, and and seeing how it evolves. I think their time plays uh, kind of in our favor. So we are deferring that decision uh, a bit and just working on the other parts because we see great uh, great movements and improvements in the space. So we focus right now on on the other uh, questions.
1: Um, in liquidity V one, uh, we have up to uh, we can borrow like ninety one LUSD against a hundred dollars of ETH collateral. Do we know what that LTV will look like in V2? Or is there an anticipated number in terms of that borrowing
3: power? I mean, we are aiming to reduce that number and we have been kind of using 105% internally. Now that's not set in stone yet, but it seems that just from the information we got, like from past liquidations on V1, it seems that 110% is rather on the upper end. So it would have probably worked well with with less, but we still want to be, you know, on the safe side. So probably it will be substantially less than 110%. Whether it will be 105, we don't know yet. Our modeling and simulations haven't been been finalized at this stage. Got it. And just to clarify, so you're saying we we could
1: potentially have more borrowing power in V2?
3: Yes. So yeah, then a higher... Or a lower collateralization means a higher LTV, which would mean maybe you can borrow ninety-five or ninety-six percent.
1: Uh, and then uh, in V1 we have the stability pool, which is like a, a very well-known uh, major component of V1 and all of the forks of V1. Does does that still exist in any form in V2, or is it no longer needed because of this new reserve back system and the secondary market that that would be? um, like new innovations.
3: So most probably there will be a stability pool and it seems that it would have a W. So it would back both the reserve as a fallback and it would also back the loans as a primary liquidation mechanism. So it would have this kind of hybrid role in the system because it's a concept that has proven to work quite well. Um, so we don't want to get rid of it without, uh, like any replacement. So yes, most likely.
1: And then lastly, uh, when when someone deposits collateral into V2 and they, they go to borrow, would we expect then for there to be this similar upfront fee and that we would still have a uh an interest free loan um while we open that position?
0: Okay, I, I can take it, yes. Um so the the borrowing experience should be really similar. Interest free is something um we uh yeah, we, we think was a great innovation which we want to keep a higher loan to value ratio and maybe we look also into something you know gravita has pioneered even having this dynamic uh, one of these so to make short-term borrowing more attractive and that's a good example you know of these friendly forks kind of really also innovating on the product and not just copying it on on another chain or uh, exchanging the collateral i think they made some really thoughtful changes and, and that's really a good one so because Liquid is really um, cheap for mid- to long-term borrowing, but for short-term borrower, um, it wasn't so far. Yeah.
1: This feels like cracking like some holy grail within, within DeFi. So I, I we'll all be excited for this to hopefully come out in Q2 2024. Uh, so I want to start to wrap up then and, and a, a few reminders to folks who are um, wanting to, to follow Robert and Michael. Uh, so first, on Twitter, you can follow Robert at Robert underscore Lauko. Uh, you can follow Michael. His is um, Svoboda Michael. It's just last name first, then first name. Um, we'll flash those on screen. Um, we've also got, of course, Liquidy Protocol. The Mothership account on Twitter is uh, Liquidy Protocol. Uh, we'll put those links in the show notes so you don't pick up any of the uh, duplicate scam accounts out there. Um, most importantly, you should learn more about Liquidity at Liquidy.org. That's the best place to get started and to learn about the decentralized front ends that allow for uh, using Liquidity. Uh, I'll point out uh, some of our favorites are Instadapp and uh, DeFi Saver. They just give you so many powerful options with flash loan recipes. And, and um, anyways, you can really get the, the fullest capabilities out of liquidity by using a front end like that, guys. I want to give you the last word. Um, first, thank you for taking the time to talk us through all of this. Uh, uh, Nomadic and I again, we we felt pretty challenged trying to like even figure out the questions to ask you. So we appreciate you actually answering those those difficult questions. Uh, and then anything else you'd like to share about you know what we should be looking uh, uh, ahead for in 2024. Or even just how to get involved in the liquidity protocol.
3: Yeah, so um, this was an awesome discussion. Thanks a lot. Um, I really enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, as to your question, we are we are intensely working on many things, and we are also working on content and uh, some like you know documentation about the system. So we are working on it in parallel and on, on multiple pieces at the same time. So please. Uh, be patient but i I guess we will be able to share more very soon and then hopefully some of the concepts would also become clear to um like the reader
1: robert michael please come back when v2 is launched we would love to do an updated podcast then that way we can actually show what v2 looks like once it's live and kind of walk through the different scenarios that we all expect to see as as users of the protocol Thanks everyone for tuning in. If you're a talented founder or developer, please consider reaching out to our team at fourthrevolution.capital. And for future episodes of the Edge podcast, please check out our link tree at edge underscore pod.